Our New Testament reading is from 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God... Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that everything God, that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. If you're just joining us, we've been working um, our way through this letter by Peter. And if you are, if you've been with us, then you may, and you're perceptive, and you've read this letter before, um, you may notice that we skipped a few verses at the end of the last chapter, the end of chapter three. Don't rush right now to go and read those verses. Um, we handled some hard verses last week. And, um, but the end of that chapter, there are actually a few verses that may be some of the most difficult in the New Testament. There's a lot of um, disagreement on what Peter is talking about in those verses. And honestly, instead of, I made a decision to pass over those verses um, because I think it, they might take away from the, the thrust of where we've been going with this letter. And instead, my plan is to send you an email with some of the different thoughts and interpretations um, about what he's talking about at the end of that letter. If you're totally confused by that right now, you can come talk to me afterwards. Um, but I'll be sending an email out later just kind of explaining um, what Peter's talking about in those verses. Um, but if you're new to this letter, if you're new to our church, um, it's worth saying again, and I've said it probably to some degree every week, just a reminder of, of who Peter is and who he's writing to. Um, that we might look at maybe the writers of the New Testament, and we think, well, man, that is a a glorious person who is very different than I am. And yet, how beautiful it is to read the New Testament and find out that is not true at all. That Peter is one whose flaws are on display for us, that Peter is one who is hot-headed, has a quick temper, who often says the wrong thing, and in, in various situations, I don't know if you can relate to that, but I surely can. But Peter is one who is loved by Jesus. He is one who, even though he denied Jesus, he is forgiven by Jesus. 
that Peter, after the resurrection, is a changed man. And so now he's writing to these new Christians who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire, and he wants to encourage them because what he wants to tell them is that you too have died with Christ and you have risen with Christ, that you have a living hope. There is no other hope, Peter is saying, other than this, the living hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and you now have that hope. And what that means is that you are now a new creature. You're a new creation that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection and you are the harvest that has followed him. And so your status in the world might look really bleak. It might not look very good, but your status in the kingdom of God is that you're a holy nation. You're a royal priesthood. You're a people for God's own possession. Isn't it good to, to come and worship God this morning and just remember and to hear some of those words because you're weak may have revealed things about you that you were utterly embarrassed of. You may have seen things in yourself, even this week, maybe this morning on the way to church, that you don't want anybody else to see about you. And you come in and you remember once again that my standing before God is not based upon merit. It is not based upon the good that I've done or the evil that I've done, it is based upon the finished work of Jesus. And Peter is driving that into their heads. Why? Because he wants them to be witnesses of the transformation of the gospel of Jesus in the midst of a context that doesn't understand it and where it's completely foreign. And he wants that, and God wants that for us as well. This is why grace and peace exists. This is why we've been called out of darkness and into light. This is why we'll see this morning we've, we've each been given gifts so that we can proclaim the excellencies of a God who moves towards us in grace and mercy and in love. So before we do that this morning, let me, let me pray. Heavenly Father, your word is, is true and it is given to us this morning in love that you reveal yourself to us. You're kind to do that. We want to make you into our image Um, We want to um, distort who you are, but you come to us and clearly tell us um, what you are like and what your character is like. You tell us what we're like, and you also tell us what wholeness and holiness looks like. And Father, we thank you that you who started a work in each of us, you, even though we might despair because we see ourselves as we are, we can be assured of the promise that the work that you started, you will bring it to completion. And so fill us with faith this morning. Fill us with hope because of what Jesus has done. Help us to be open to the direction of your word this morning. Um, Even as we've heard the the glorious um, truths about who we are, I pray that we would be open to the imperatives, to the commands that flow out of that. That we would see them as good and good for us and good for your world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're here last week, I, I started um, my sermon by talking a little bit, by being vulnerable with you. I talked a little bit about my fluctuation between being healthy and being unhealthy, right? You remember this? Um, that I tend to move in cycles and I tend to move in extremes. And I'm going to continue. This is not about me this morning, um, but it's an illustration, all right? So it's going to help us hopefully to understand what Peter is doing in this passage. But back in the spring, I decided that I was going to get on a healthy kick. And so 
I adopted one of the many plans that are available to us to help us do this, right? There's many plans out there that promise um, a lot. And so one of those plans, this is not an infomercial, I promise, but one of those plans is called Whole30. I thought I'd hear more groaning. but <laughs> And so Whole30 is basically, I mean, it's people in their like 30s and 40s are really attracted to this as a way of repentance, I think, of living the wrong way for most of their life. Because it's basically 30 days of, of taking all the things that you most love away from you, right? And so this is what um, I did for 30 days is that um, I basically started to discover as I took away some of the things that I was used to that my, my flesh, my body craved these things intensely. And I didn't know... And and beforehand, I didn't really know that because I was just used to giving my body really what it wanted. And I wasn't aware of the fact that some of the things that I craved um, were actually, you know, probably destructive to me and not good for me. And so the more that I began to take them away and to step back, I began to see what they were actually um, doing to me. In 30 days, I gave up. But my point is this, I started to see that Um, basically the less I would eat these maybe sugary things, the more I began to develop a taste for things that I I didn't have a taste for, for before, that they actually started to taste good to me. And so I take away, um, ice cream and I would take away, I have a, I have a, I don't have a sweet tooth as much as I have like a fried chicken tooth, uh, (laughs) So I would take away those fried, those delicious fried things, and then I would bite into an apple, and the apple would taste like candy. It tasted so sweet and so good. And I think that what Peter is doing in this passage is that he is he is redirecting our appetite, and he's redirect and he's getting us to taste something, and he wants to redirect our appetite towards this. It's, and it's something we've talked about over and over again. He's redirecting our appetite toward love. Toward love. That when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, basically, it's this. It's the summation of the law. To love the Lord your God with all your soul and heart and strength and mind. And to love your neighbor as yourself. And he, Peter is redirecting these new Christians on this journey. So that they may, may begin to kind of taste how good it is to actually do what you were created by our Father to do, to love him and to love our neighbor. And so in this time of, of chaos, in this time where there was threats of persecution, in a time of intense um, government oppression, in this time where they generally just felt exiled and alienated from the world, the natural thing Peter knows that they might do and we do when we're in those situations is to run back to the things that help us to feel okay again. And so he lists some of those things in this passage. He says they're the things that you used to do. And if you're feeling scared and you're feeling afraid and you're feeling like the world is against you, what is your most natural inclination It's to run to the indulgences of our flesh that that seem to promise to us that everything's going to be okay, and yet they never fulfill that promise. They begin to numb out 
maybe some of the pain and the fear. And what Peter's reminding of these new Christians is this, that listen, you have been eternally loved by God. He wants to, he wants to just get them to taste this, like what this actually means, because when they look around, they're going to forget it, and it's not going to be palpable or tangible to them at every moment, and so he's reminding them, and he's getting them to remind one another, you have been eternally loved by the maker and the creator of the heavens and the earth, and do you know what that means? It means this, that you don't have anything left to fear. That if God is for you, then who could possibly be against you? If God is for you, who could possibly be against you? And if you have nothing left to fear, then what happens? Well, he says it earlier in in, in chapter 3, then you are free now to live as free people. And free people who have been redeemed by God, what are they free now to do? They're free not to simply satiate their own flesh. Out of, out of despondency and out of fear and out of despair, they are now set free to love. They are now set free to love in the very same way that they've been loved. And so this morning, what I want to do is think about just a little bit those first six verses. And I'm going to touch on those, but then we're going to spend most of our time in verses 7 through 11, where Peter is actually giving them a picture uh, of what a healthy appetite looks like. The healthy appetite of a Christian, this is what it looks like. So he spends some time, one through six, sort of negatively, and then goes positively in seven through 11. And so in one one through six, this is what he, this is his logic. He's telling these new Christians, you're not what you once were. It's not just that you have believed something different. It's that something radically different has happened to you. It's not just that you've changed your mind, it's that you have been transformed and now the Spirit of God now lives inside of you. You're not what you once were. Not because you've made like like I did when I started Whole30, it's not because you made some resolution to be better. That's not what Christianity is. It's not because you simply put away some of the old things that you used to do and now you do nice things. No, that you are a new creation because you are now united with Christ. This word he uses four times in six verses, in the flesh. You are united with Christ in his flesh. And so what Peter is getting you to visualize is that Christ in the flesh, he suffered. Where did he suffer? He suffered on the cross. What happened on the cross? As Jesus suffered on the cross, sin and death were obliterated and abolished, and their power was obliterated, and it was abolished. So now they are new creations. So much so, he says, the rest of the time that you live in your flesh, being now united to Christ's flesh, that you no longer live according to human passions, but you live according to the will of God. And so he kind of lists some of the things that they used to do. And he gets to the point where he says, you know, there's going to be people who look at you and they think they're weird now because they used to do these things with us and now they no longer do those things with us anymore. And he said that they will malign you. 
And basically what Peter says is, don't worry about that. Um, Don't worry and don't judge them. It's not your job to now kind of hurl stones. You know, we used to be bad people, but now we're really good people and kind of wag our finger. Instead, Peter says this, everyone stands before Jesus, that Jesus is the ultimate judge, meaning you don't have to be the judge, that you leave this in Jesus's hands. And because of that, he anticipates one of their questions in verse six. And this is another one of those verses that um, is a little bit difficult and maybe weird to our ears. But one of the, when, when he talks about the fact that Jesus will judge the living and the dead, one of the huge questions for, for Christians in the early church is what happens to these Christians, our friends, once they die. Because there was a thought, and you see this in, in Thessalonians, you see it in different places in the New Testament, there was this thought that Christians would not die before Jesus returned. And so what happens to them, and Peter says that same Christ was also preached to those who died, who were dead, so that they now are not judged, even though they're judged by the world um, in death, so the world looks at them and go, well, you believe in a God who's resurrected from the dead and raises people from the dead, and yet you died. That even though they are judged by the world, yet they live in the spirit in the eyes of God. And so with those things churning in their minds, Peter takes the opportunity to turn it back upon them. So maybe they're thinking about those who have died. Maybe they're thinking about who they once were. And so he takes those moment, that moment and he seizes it and he says these words. Listen, the end of all things is at hand. That should kind of grip us and stop us in our tracks, and I'm sure that it stopped the early hearers of this letter and readers of this letter, that he says, listen, the end of all things are at hand. So while they're thinking about this, he reminds them that their days, too, are actually numbered. We don't like to think about, I don't like to think about the end of all things. You probably don't like to think about the end of all things. You might be getting uncomfortable that maybe I'm about to talk about the end of all things. We don't like to think about anything ending unless it's like, you know, a trip to the grocery store or um, the dentist. No offense to dentists in the room, but we don't like to think about things ending, much less the end of all things is at hand. So being confronted with the end of all things is incredibly uncomfortable. Here's the thing. Is Peter, is he making a prediction about when Jesus is going to come back. Is that what he's saying? Listen, the end of all things is at hand. That means Jesus is coming back really, really soon. Maybe Peter even knows when that is. That is not what Peter's doing. You know how I know that's not what he's doing? Because Peter was there when Jesus said himself, no one will know the hour or the day. So what instead is he doing? He's reminding his readers and he's reminding us that if this thing is true, if Jesus who ascended into heaven is going to return, but nobody knows the hour or the day that it will happen, that means the end of all things is always at hand. If you know that something is going to happen in the future, but you have no idea when it's going to happen, it's always near, right? 
If you know that Jesus is returning, but I don't know if that's going to be by the end of this sermon or if that's going to be in 200 years, then that means it's always before me because I know the truth of it is that it's actually going to happen. And because we know that, Peter says, therefore. Therefore. The end of all things is at hand, therefore, meaning that should cause a response in us. It tells us something about our life when we know that there is an end to it. And he tells them four things to be engaged in. So he kind of tells them, you had an old appetite for things that never satisfied. Um, You are a new creation with a new appetite. And I want to tell you four things to focus on. And this is what we're going to, to wrap up with this morning. And they're so simple. They're so basic. And yet they are so beautiful because Peter is writing to people who are going to experience a lot of suffering and a lot of pain and a lot of hurt and their reaction to the world may be to um, raise their fists to the world. And instead, he gives them a very different path and I think it's the path that Jesus has given them to take. And it's this, four things to focus on, prayer, love, hospitality, and service. Prayer, Love, hospitality, and service. So the first thing he says is the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayer. That sounds a little anticlimactic, doesn't it? The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be sober-minded so that you can pray. But Peter, it says, it could all be over in a minute. Therefore, clear your head. Clear your head. Keep your mind sharp. Why? So that you can pray. He doesn't tell them what to pray for. I think that what Peter is saying is that if you know that the day is at hand when you are going to meet your bridegroom, the one who has set his love on you, the one who has forgiven you. See, Peter had this experience with Jesus on the beach where he felt and heard the forgiveness of Jesus and Peter knows there is a day coming when he is going to see Jesus again. And so Peter's words are very poignant here. Peter says, keep your mind clear because you're gonna see Jesus and I've seen him and he's so good and he is the one who's forgiven you. So I want you to keep your, your mind clear for the sake of your prayers so that you can talk to him, so that you can be ready to meet with him Once again, knowing that we will see him face to face is sobering. It keeps you alert. You know, when my my wife goes out of town sometimes, and she's maybe gone for a few days, when she's, I know that maybe she's going to come back, but I don't know exactly when she's going to come back. Um, I stay sober-minded, right, and alert. Why? Not because I'm afraid of her, but because I love her. And so I don't want my wife to come back home and everything be utterly destroyed. And I'm like laying on the couch with like potato chips all over me, watching Netflix and going, oh, you're back. You know, because I want her to know that I've been thinking about her, that she is on my mind and I've been wanting to be with her. And so I've been preparing for it. Um, A little while back, a couple years ago, I went on a a road trip with a a friend. And I love road trips. 
I love, I love riding in the car and I love listening to music and especially with, when it's with a good friend. And um, so we were going on a road trip, but we were going to Durham, North Carolina. And this road trip was a little bit different because I was riding with this friend because we were going to the Duke Cancer Center. And so this good friend of mine who was my age um, at the time, he's 40 years old, and he had just been recently diagnosed with stage four cancer, and he was going to get treated at Duke. And so he would go up every Wednesday, and oftentimes I would ride with him. And that first time that I rode with him, you know, I, it, I was a little nervous. Because what do, you, what do I say to this man that I love um, who is going through this incredibly painful thing, and you could think of all the stupid things that have already probably been said to him. But one of the things that I asked him right after we got going is that how does this change the way that you look at your life now? And without hesitation, just like that, he said, I have to talk to Jesus all the time because I'm gonna, I know I'm going to see him soon. I have, to, I have to always, he said, I have never prayed like I pray now because I know that I'm going to be with him. And there's a sense of longing there to be with him. And I have to talk to him all the time. Keeping the end in sight, it doesn't make you crazy. It makes you sane. This is what Peter's doing. It doesn't make you insane. It makes you sane. It, it makes you remember what your life is actually about. And we, let's just be honest, we get distracted about that all the time. Because God isn't interested. Listen, he's not interested in how much you make. He's not interested in how funny you are. He's not interested in how good you look or how skinny you are, right? He's not interested in all the things that maybe you're most proud of about yourself. What, he, what is he interested in? This is where Peter goes next. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Above everything, what is God interested in? Peter tells us, above all, he's concerned that we love one another earnestly. And in fact, the other things that he mentions, the last two things we'll talk about, hospitality and service, are really just subsets of what that actually looks like and what that actually means. So Peter is writing to this group of Christians, I've said it a thousand times, who are undergoing persecution on many levels. And it's interesting, in this whole letter, he never mentions to them anything about how to fight back. He never mentions anything about organizing yourself as a group of people so that you might take back control. If you think about, of all the things he could have told these Christians, these early Christians who are afraid, who are alienated, who are persecuted, he says, above all things, what I want you to most hear is that you keep loving one another earnestly. People who are sure of their end, people who have a living hope because of the resurrection, listen, they don't have to secure their lives and shape their identity according to the things of this world because they have been set free to love lavishly. And this Christ-type love, what he's saying is that this is the best defense and apologetic and witness 
of the good news of Jesus Christ in the world. Because Jesus said it himself. They will know that you are my disciples. What? If you love one another. That was it. We've got to work on that. If you love, if you love one another, you, they will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And let's just be honest. American evangelical Christianity is not necessarily known for that. If you look at the current climate, it's angry, it's hostile, it's dripping with vitriol, like, it's combative. It's, against, it's always about what it's against and maybe not necessarily what it's for. And I believe it's one of the greatest tragedies of our age and one of the things that the church most needs to repent of. If we, let, if we spent less of our time promoting our particular brand of politics on Facebook or arguing with people who disagree with us, and we spent more time thinking sincerely and eagerly, how might I love my neighbor? the way that Jesus has loved me. Can you imagine the good that that would do for the gospel of Jesus? Why? Because he says that love covers a multitude of sins. Now, that can be kind of a confusing statement that Peter says love covers a multitude of sins. Is what Peter's saying that if I love other people earnestly, then God will cover my sin? No. God's love for you is not based on how earnestly you love. Thank God. God's covering of your sin took place at the cross. And you are now washed by the blood of the Lamb. So what does Peter mean? Peter means, what he means is that when we love one another earnestly, it actually covers over the way that we've hurt and wounded one another. I mean, you've experienced this, right? I mean, if somebody has, has hurt you, maybe it's somebody in this very room. Maybe it's the, your spouse. Let's just go with that. Maybe it's a, a friend or a roommate, and they've hurt you, and yet they come back to you and they repent, and they ask for your forgiveness. That is one thing. But if on top of that, they begin to love you in a way that they hadn't loved you before, It covers a multitude of sins. Do you get it? And so he says, you are going to hurt one another. You're not going to do this perfectly. So I want you to earnestly love one another because love covers a multitude of sins. And you've all experienced that, I hope. But the next two things that he mentions kind of flesh this out. What does that look like? And so he says this. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And I think one of the ways that we primarily love as Christians, and this is something we talk about in our church a lot, is hospitality. It's one of the primary ways that that we show the gospel and we love. There's, There's real imperative force in Peter's words, especially in the original language, that he says, be hospitable. In other words, Peter's saying, this isn't just a gift for certain people. This is an outflowing of the work of the gospel of Jesus in your life, is that you now become somebody who is hospitable. What does that mean? That you become somebody who is welcoming. And that doesn't mean that 
you know, what we're used to with hospitality in the South, it means you've got a nice house and you know how to cook a good dinner. I love those people. Keep inviting me over. It's not talking about that, though. It's talking about opening yourself up to the lives of other people and the lives of people who are different from you. And, you know, Jesus, this is the upside-down way of Jesus that in his own words, he says, when you have a dinner party, don't just invite your rich neighbors who you know will pay you back, but invite in the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. If you're wondering what will, what, if you're wondering kind of like what will help our culture to see Christ in the midst of a culture that you might be frustrated with or you think doesn't understand Jesus and understand the gospel, look no further than loving one another earnestly and hospitality. But then he ends with this. And it's just a subset of how we love each other. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And all Peter is saying is, listen, everything that you have or possess is a gift from God. Everything. Your intellect, where you were born, who your parents were, how much money you have, the things that you feel as if, I've earned these and so these are mine. Where'd you get the ability to earn things? Everything is a gift from God. Everything. And he says, what are you going then to do with that gift? And he says, what I want you to do is to use your gift as a way that you might serve others. What good is it if you use your gift to secure your own name and to secure your own life and to build your own little kingdom where everyone looks up to you and admires you and all these things if your life may end in the next 10 minutes? What good is it? That's what he wants you to ask. But he's saying, why don't you use your gifts to serve one another and actually build this kingdom that will never end, that you've been graciously invited into. Why would we do that? What is the goal? He tells us at the very end, the goal is this, the goal of self-control and sober-mindedness and prayer and love and hospitality and service in the face of Jesus' return is that in everything, in everything, God may be glorified. This is it. This is, if you're wondering what you're called to as a Christian, if you're wondering what your calling is in life, and the very different ways we can manifest that in the world, we have to still come back to this. This is our calling, that in everything God may be glorified. For us to love in the time of chaos, this glorifies God because it mimics God. It may not look like much, maybe to you, and it may not look like much to the world, maybe around you, but it is, I promise, utterly revolutionary and extraordinary. You are going to meet your bridegroom. You were made for him. And there is nothing outside of him and his glory that truly satisfies So how do we do that? All the New Testament letters are usually divided into telling us who we are, and then how we respond. We're in the part now where he tells us how to respond, but we do it by remembering who we are. We do it by going back to the beginning of the letter because the fuel that propels you towards this is the living hope 
of the resurrection, that you have been raised with Christ, that you have nothing left to fear, that you have an imperishable inheritance that will never fade away, that is reserved for you in heaven, and you don't have to preserve and defend and protect your own life. You are free now to give it away as Jesus has done for you. Let me pray. Father, oh, that we would believe this, that you might continue to help us to believe it, that you might forgive us of our unbelief, that you might take away all of our fear as we gaze at the beauty of our bridegroom, Jesus. Father, as a people, may you knit this group at Grace and Peace more closely together, that we might keep on loving one another earnestly, that as we meditate and and believe in and rest in your love for us, um, may we not hoard that, but help that translate into the way that we treat one another and the way that we welcome in the outsider and the stranger and those who are outcast or maybe who are maligned in our culture. Father, that we would always keep in front of us the fact that we were enemies at one time and yet you welcomed us. Father, may that help us to love well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.